You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good morning. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. As uh, Sam talked about, I'm originally from the South. And uh, so you'll, you'll hear a little southern accent in me at times. And, but um, the very first time I heard Sam preach was at a student camp. And he did the book of Philemon or Philemon or whatever you want to call it. And he taught through it. And I was sitting there as he was teaching our students. And as he was telling his story, as he was teaching through that book, as he was interacting. And I could just sense this God's hand on him. And I remember following up with him and saying, man, I really appreciate your teaching. You did just an amazing job. Do you want to connect sometime? And, and so that student camp began a journey of friendship together. And over the last several years, I've grown to love him and Jordan and their boys and soon to be little one very, very, very much. And even over the last couple of days, yesterday we were lifting weights together and then we played this thing called pickleball. Anybody play? It's addicting, pickleball. But uh, we played a little bit of pickleball and had some fun and met some new friends and then just hung out around their uh, island in their kitchen for hours yesterday and ate veggies all day long. And uh, then I had a great night last night, and it's been a joy to be here, and it's a privilege and an honor to teach the Word of God here. I don't take that for granted. Anytime you can open the Word of God and teach it, it is an honor and it's a privilege. And so I humbly stand before you this morning, and I will talk a little about me, but I hope you don't leave remembering anything about me, but I hope you remember me talking a lot about Jesus this morning. Because he's the one that will sustain you, he's the one that will change you, and he's the one that will be with you uh, to the end of time. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, and while you make your way there, chapter 1, I've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm from the south, I talk fast like I'm from the north. So um, you, you can uh, do your best to keep up. If you remember the Micro Machine Man back in the day, I'm dating myself. Uh, if I get a little bit like that, you can go online and listen to me again. But uh, we have two adult sons, 24 and 22. We have a daughter in love. We don't call her a daughter in law, we call her a daughter in love. And then we have these things called grandkids. Uh, We have any grandparents out there? How many people know that grandkids are God's reward for not killing your kids? Can I get an amen? Yes. In the South, we say amen when the preacher says something that we identify with. And so uh, I don't know what they do in Maryland, but I'm going to encourage you to say amen. Or if you want something more 21st century, say come on. Like come on. Okay? So if I say something today that resonates, amen or come on. All right. So we have these two things called grandkids, and this season is a joy as we get to be grandparents. And so we grew up in the South. We spent ministry in Louisville, Kentucky, the heart of the Bible Belt, the edge of the Bible Belt, Portland, Oregon, Vancouver, Washington, the edge of the Bible Belt, I mean, furthest thing removed from the Bible Belt, and now to the nations as we advance the gospel in the spiritually darkest places of the world. That's our calling, and that's what we're about. Today, before the end of the day, 88,000 people will die, more than that will actually die, but will die never having heard the name Jesus. 88,000 people. 88,000 people have never heard, Jesus loves me, this I know. Never heard that. For the, they have no idea about the love of Christ. And in this season, our calling is to go where the gospel has not, 
and to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus so they may come to faith in Christ. The best way to describe it is in this season, we're going to be a Paul. Now, by no means do I think I can fill Paul's shoes. And I'm going to talk this morning as a Paul to you, but I understand that I have a long way to go to be the Apostle Paul. The thing that is growing in my heart the most that identifies with the Apostle Paul is I look at myself as the worst sinner in the room. Because Paul called himself the chief of what? He called himself the chief of sinners when he was a 30-year veteran in ministry. And he identified himself that way. And and so I'm going to stand before you as, if you would, the Apostle Paul and talk to you from that framework as we look at the book of 2 Timothy. And this morning, I want to do two things. I'm going to cover a lot of ground, but I want to do two things. The very first thing this morning I want to do is encourage you, is to encourage you. The word encourage means to breathe courage into. Have you ever thought about that? When you encourage someone, what you are doing is breathing courage into that person to continue to go forward. And so this morning, I want to breathe courage into you. And as then you are full of courage because of the word of God, I want to exhort you. The word exhort is to urge, to call, to lean on, to pressure a little bit. And so I I may pressure you, but it's after I encourage you. And then hopefully together we'll take that and do what the word of God teaches us this morning. So let me pray and we'll begin. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your word promises never to return void. So Lord, would it root itself in our heart in such a way that out of it springs forth life? May we taste and see that you are good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been thinking a lot about legacy since my grandkids came into the world. It's not just my kids, but now it's my grandkids, and there's this generational framework in my mind. There was a book written in 2008 by Randy uh, Posh, and he wrote a book called The Last Lecture, and he was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, and professors that are leaving that had a great tenure, they did a series of last lectures. And Randy was given the honor to do a last lecture as he retired. And at the same time, he found out that he had pancreatic cancer. And he was given three to six months to live. And so he writes this book. I read it in 2008, and it really began to reorient my framework. As he turned that last lecture at Carnegie Mellon into a book to leave to his children, that then we have the privilege of being able to read. And 2 Timothy is Paul's last lecture. Paul right now has found himself in Manor Time Prison. He is awaiting being beheaded. He is shackled and chained in one of the darkest, dimmest, dungeonest prisons you can be in. And he is awaiting his execution. And while he is awaiting his execution, he writes these words. And how many people know that last words are lasting words? It's one thing if I told you something today, it's it's another thing if you knew this was the last time I would ever talk. And I knew that. It would change how we think about it. Paul's lonely at the moment. Every single person when you read this book has left him except for Luke. There's some people mad at him that have complained about him, that have other things to do, and they have left him. And Luke is there, and he's alone in prison awaiting execution. And in this moment, he is thinking about his son in the faith, Timothy, and he's going to encourage him and exhort him because he knows his time has come to an end. And so he says this in 
chapter 2, or verse, chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ, <clears throat> Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your uh, mother Eunice. Thank God for grandly, uh, godly mothers and grandmothers. And I am sure dwells in you as well. He begins to greet Timothy, and for some reason we don't know, but Timothy is struggling right now. Paul mentioned he has a lot of tears. I don't know if Timothy is struggling because there's fighting in the church at Ephesus, because there is at this time. I don't know if he's struggling because he knows that his uh, mentor is about to be beheaded. I don't know if he's struggling because if you know scripture, he had stomach issues, and Paul talked about a little wine was good for his stomach, and he's, he's timid Timothy. He didn't like conflict. I don't know why he is struggling at this moment, but what he's doing is he's crying a lot. This is where Paul's at. This is where Timothy's at, and Paul starts off breathing courage into his son in faith by telling him five things, what we just read, five things. Paul tells Timothy, and these are five things every person needs to hear from someone. Every single, you, I don't care if you're 88 or you're 8, you need to hear this from someone. And Paul is telling Timothy these things. And the first thing he tells Timothy is, he tells him, I love you. He says, I love you. The second thing he tells Timothy in this particular area is, I think about you all the time. I remember you constantly. I love you and I remember you constantly. And he continues to build off that. I love you. I remember you constantly. I think about you all the time. I know you. And when you look at that is I see you. There's a difference between thinking about somebody and really seeing them. I see your pain. I see your tears. I see the reality you're in. I, I know what you like. I know that you, what you don't like. I see you. And, and we, we live in a culture that people are hungry to be seen. They're seen on Facebook, but they continue to post because they post a thousand times, but they still don't feel seen. And Paul is letting Timothy know that even though I'm awaiting execution, I see you. I'm thinking about you. I love you. And then he tells them this, I have joy when I am with you. I don't just tolerate you. God didn't chain you to me as my Timothy, but I enjoy your company. I enjoyed Sam sitting with you around the table and, and breaking bread and having conversation and talking about bone broth and eating veggies. And, and I would do it again and again and again. And I wasn't looking at my clock because I enjoyed it. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Listen, I have joy when I am with you. And then perhaps the most profound, the thing that we all need to hear is Paul tells Timothy, I see Christ in you. I see Christ in you. And Timothy is discouraged, and perhaps in encouraging Timothy, Paul is encouraging himself as well. And he's breathing courage into Timothy, and he tells him these things. And church, I want you to hear me this morning. We have a younger generation that need us to believe in them. Like Paul believed in Timothy. And they need to hear our kids, our grandkids, the student ministry, the children's ministry, need to hear us say these things to them. And Paul goes on, knowing his situation, knowing Timothy's situation in verse 6, and he says this, 
For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame. Say, fan the flame. Of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He is breathing courage, and he's saying, listen, you need to remember. Fan the flame. Remember what you've been taught by your mama and your grandmama. Remember what you've heard me teach. You need to remember and fan the flame of the word of God in your life. No matter what you see, believe what you know to be true. And fan the flame. We need to to remind ourselves of these things and fan the flame. And I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what you're going through. But I would be remiss not to think for a moment that you're walking through something in in a way you need to remember and fan the flame of your faith. Paul tells Timothy, when your friends leave you, basically, fan the flame. When church members complain and gripe, fan the flame. When you're scared, fan the flame. When people talk bad about you and persecute you and say all manner of evil, as the Bible says, against you, for his namesake, fan the flame. When the gospel is rejected, when you share it with your neighbor or coworker or that pagan in Ephesus for Timothy, fan the flame. So church, when your loved one has cancer, fan the flame. When you lose your job, fan the flame. When you find yourself trying to escape reality, binging Netflix for two days in a row, and you have no motivation, fan the flame. And when you're scared and you're paralyzed by fear, fan the flame. Some of us this morning need somebody to turn around and blow into the embers of our soul to reignite our faith. And like a billow in a fireplace, fan the flame. So Paul encourages Timothy by telling him who he is to him. He encourages Timothy by reminding him of what he's learned in the word of God. And then he encourages Timothy in verse seven, where he says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Did you know that fear is not of the father? I want you to think about that. We fear God, meaning we have reverence and honor and respect for him, right? We do that. But fear, as we think about it in the world, is not of the Father. Wherever the Spirit is present is the absence of fear. I want you to think about this for me. I'm just going to tease this out just for a moment. The flesh yields fear. The Spirit yields power, love, and self-control. The Bible teaches that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love. What is perfect love? It's knowing who you are and whose you are. Knowing who you are and whose you are changes how you view the reality of your situation so you can interact without fear because you know who's in control and you know you are loved and all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And so scripture teaches us over and over and over again, in fact, over 365 times, one for every day of the week, not to fear. Where there is fear, there is absence of faith. And where there is absence of faith, there's absence of trust in God. And where there is absence of trust in God, there is a misunderstanding of the love of God. So perfect love casts out fear. So he tells Timothy, I'm about to be beheaded, but don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't give up. 
And then he encourages this breath of encouragement in verse 8. And he says, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share. Some versions say, join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He says, Timothy, I want to encourage you to, to join with me. Know that the calling that you have is a holy calling. And I want you to understand, church, your calling as a disciple to make disciples, that make disciples, that make disciples, is a holy calling. It's a holy calling. It's not just, a, it's a calling. Holy means set apart. It is a calling set apart. You may not know what you're going to do with your life. Young adults ask me all the time, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I don't know what college they, he wants me to go to, what degree he wants me to have. I know God's will for your life. To make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Primary. So do that and the secondary will come into focus as you're doing that. Right? Focus on the primary and the secondary will, will run its course. Why? That's the calling that all of us are set apart to do, no matter where we're at. And he says, don't be ashamed. I have to remind myself of that in Portland. It's not the Bible Belt. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. So join with me. He says in verse 9, not because of our works, so he says, this is great. He, he, Paul tells Timothy, join with me, not because you're any good. Sam, join with me. Not because you're any good. We need to hear that too. Michael, join with me. Not because you have a good resume. Join with me. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Join with me. But no, it is not dependent on you. It's in spite of you. Because of the grace in you, because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So the pressure's off. Just be obedient. And know it's not dependent on you. Or, or don't worry about your past and keep you paralyzed in your present because you think you're not good enough. Because you know what? You're not. But he is, and he that is in you, he who began a good work, is faithful to complete it. Charles Spurgeon, you ever heard of that dude? Charles Spurgeon, he said this, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> That'll preach. Say, I'm jacked up. <laughs> you have no idea. he charges you falsely at some point, this is such a great quote. If he charges you falsely at some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might, have ch he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be nearer to the truth. Drop the mic, right? So lest you think for a moment that you're good, it is not your goodness why God called you. It's his grace. 
And it's his grace that sustains you and fuels you. And the grace realized in salvation is the thing that motivates your obedience as you walk in sanctification. And so he tells Timothy, it's grace, grace, grace. And then he says this in verse 12. He says, remember who's got you. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know who I believe. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Do you know who the guardian of your salvation is? The Holy Hound of Heaven. The Trinity. God ordained it. Christ secures it. The Spirit sustains it. First Peter talks about that. And he's like, don't miss for a moment who's got you. Know who's got me right now. Although it seems like I am captivity, I am in the hands of Jesus. And he is guarding me, although I am being guarded at this moment. So don't miss the reality of the situation. But what you think is true, know what is true. And he encourages them with this. Now that Timothy has had the, the billow blown into the embers of his soul and he is encouraged, with courage breathed into his soul, Paul's going to exhort him. So church, now I'm going to exhort you. Which in the south, that means I'm going to step on your toes a little bit. But it's okay because you've been encouraged. It's okay because you've been encouraged. And so Paul in chapter 2, verse 1 says this. So because of all that I just said, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul tells Timothy, listen, don't miss this. Now you've been encouraged, but know this before I exhort you completely. No, you cannot do this alone. You can't. There's four generations mentioned here. What I've passed to you, find faithful men and women who you can pass it on to, who will find others also. Four generations. That's how multiplication happens in churches. A disciple who makes a disciple, who makes a disciple, who makes a disciple. It's multiplication, not addition. That's what it looks like. And so Paul tells Timothy, you need to find some, some godly men and women, some godly individuals that you can pour into, that are pouring into others like I poured into you. You need to do this because you cannot do it alone. And what Timothy does not know, and what Paul does not know, but what the Holy Spirit who does know, who inspired Paul to write this, is that the church of Ephesus would plant every single church mentioned in the book of Revelation. It would be a kingdom outpost for planting churches in Asia Minor. It was central to what God was going to do throughout the known world at that time. And so in order for that to take place, Timothy needed to be encouraged, and he needed to pass it on like he had been passed down to from Paul. And when I think about this, it reminds me also of Exodus chapter 18. 
This idea that that you've got to find others and you've got to delegate to them and you've got to deploy them and you've got to disciple them and you've got to uh, have them come along and hold up your arms and encourage you. And it's a story of Moses. He's leading a million Israelites. They just begin their promised land journey. And, And Moses is standing like here and there's thousands of people and they're waiting in a queue in line to talk to Moses to settle disputes and to tell him what to do. Can you imagine how exhausting that would be? Minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, and the line never ends. It's like a bowl of spaghetti that never goes away. just keeps filling up. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, I call Jethro a butt kicker because Jethro tells the truth in this moment, and Moses needed to hear the truth. And Jethro comes up to Moses and says, what in the world are you doing? And he says this, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. You need help. How many people can say in this room, I need help? Come on. I'm going to help you. I need help. I need help. We are way too proud and arrogant to ask for it, especially men. I love that. If you think you can do it alone, you're a fool. Come pick up your toes now. You can't. You can't. For the burden's too heavy. The load is too big. And so Jethro says, you need to look for able men from all people who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. You need to find godly men, organize them, and delegate so they can help you lead these people. And at verse 22 in Exodus 18, it says, And let them judge the people at all times, every great matter they shall bring you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. This is what Paul is basically doing with Timothy. You can't do it alone. You can't teach everybody. You can't deal with everything. You can't solve every problem. So you need to find some godly men and women. You need to develop them. They need to develop others, and you need to continue this. And then he's going to give them three metaphors. Three metaphors he's going to give them about who they need to find. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And I'm going to share these three metaphors and bring this together. And he says this in verse 3. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He says, you need, to, you need to share in the suffering as a good soldier. We don't like to talk about soldiers now because in our culture, sometimes it's now thinking like, ah, but this, the scripture speaks all the time like we're soldiers and we're in battles. And as soldiers, we need to understand who the enemy is. And the enemy is not flesh and what? The enemy is not Democrats. The enemy is not Republicans. 
I will never be invited back to preach now. Too close to D.C. The, the enemy is not, is not uh, uh, somebody from a different ethnic background or social status. The, the enemy are the power and principalities. Satan and his a henchman, if you would. That's the enemy. That's the one pulling strings. That's the one moving behind the scenes. And most of the time we fight a battle that we can't win because we fight with the wrong weapons thinking that these people are the enemy when it's a spiritual battle that requires spiritual weapons from spiritual soldiers. Paul says, the most honest recruiter who have ever lived Join with me in suffering. There's your contract. Not your best life now. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Think about a soldier and their training and development. Think about special forces training. Think about courage and conviction. Think about even scripture like Luke says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. That's what a soldier does, denies themselves. Because they know the mission is bigger than them. And they're, they're willing to do that. You see, the American dream says prosperity, individualism, and abundance. But the gospel calls us to die, suffer, and sacrifice. And Paul's honest about it. And church, I'm honest about it. Is following Jesus the most beautiful, rewarding thing you will ever do in your entire life? And his mercies are new every morning. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Absolutely. But is also following after Jesus going to cost you more than you ever thought? It's going to be more difficult than you could ever imagine. And you're going to lose more than you could ever think? Absolutely. Why? Because your allegiance is to a different king. The rules that you live by to a different authority. The motivation different. And so Paul, he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He doesn't say a soldier can't do civilian things. He says a soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? Because civilian pursuits are for civilians and a soldier knows that he has a mission. She has a mission. And there's a lot of civilian pursuits we get entangled in that distract us Distract us from the mission. Do you know the word distracted comes from a French word of torture? The word distracted is a French form of torture where they would take a person, they would tie an arm and another arm and a leg and another leg to four horses. And the horses would pull the arms and the legs in four different directions. And they would call that being distracted until the tension grew so much that what happened, the person was torn apart. To be distracted is for your mind to be caught up with so many things that it gets pulled in so many directions that no longer can you focus on the mission or the priority or the purpose because now you're entangled with all these things and now you are no good as a soldier following after things that aren't wrong but are distracting you from the priority that God has placed on you. Some of you are distracted now. Some of you, as soon as you leave, will be distracted because your kids will enter your car. 
Some of us get distracted because we binge Netflix every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And our minds are torn in two. How quickly our hearts get captured by trivial things. We need men and women who are soldiers and not tangled in civilian affairs. Next, we have the athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 5. The level of passion and commitment for an extreme athlete is extraordinary. Think of LeBron James or, or Michael Jordan or think of you know, Tiger Woods back in his heyday of golf or whoever it may be, Michael Phelps. You think of these athletes and, and their dedication, their discipline is absolutely phenomenal. And there's a lot of people who are like, I don't know if I can discipline myself like an athlete. You know what I've learned? This is about my life, and I think it's true about most people's lives. Every single person can discipline themselves because they all discipline themselves around the things they love. We all do. And an athlete disciplines themselves and they practice day in and day night, and night and day. And they have a small window of time where Michael Phelps has a 10-second race or a one-minute race. But he trains 60 hours for a minute or 60 hours for three minutes. And that's the idea of an athlete. It's every day I'm in the Word. Every day I'm praying. Every day I'm spiritual formation. Every day I'm walking in obedience. Every single day. The private space, the secret space precedes the public place. God does in me before he does through me. I persevere and I am faithful and I'm consistent and there's compounding exponential interest. You can't tell at first, but after a period of time, you start seeing it. You see, everyone wants shortcuts. Just eat mangoes, take this pill and be skinny. Eat Frosted Flakes and it makes you good at sports. But that's not how it works. Time and patience of discipline. You train yourself for godliness, as Paul talks about. So we need men and women who are athletes and compete according to God's ways and are disciplined. And then the farmer. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. We have the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. The farmer. How many people have ever grown something before? Growing something is not as easy as somebody might think. How many people have failed at growing something? How many people have killed plants? Okay, I should have got an amen or a come on. <laughs> In our culture, we're consumers, not cultivators. You want a meal, you go out to eat. You want a steak, you buy it, you don't raise the cattle. You want free-range eggs without the mess of chickens, you go to the store. We have to break our addiction to the immediate. Growth takes time and patience. Growth is a crock pot, not a microwave or an air fryer. Growth is not Chick-fil-A's drive through which is much faster, let's say, than whatever other place oftentimes. It takes time. Think about a farmer. Gets up in the morning, 5 a.m., puts on his work boots, puts on her work boots, puts on the Carhartt, scrapes manure, does chores, sows the seed, waters the seed, feed the seed, goes to bed. 
gets up in the morning, puts on the shoes, puts on the Carhartt, shovels the manure, cleans the farm, sows the seed, waters the seed, fertilizes the seed, and does it again. And there was no reality TV shows about farmers because nobody cares about farmers until the harvest season. Why? Because it's day in, day out, constant attention and patience. And the thing about a farmer is you have no idea if it's going to be a one-bushel harvest, a two-bushel harvest, or a three. You just know you're going to be faithful, and you're going to pray that the weather holds and the rain comes and the floods stay away so you can get the best harvest possible. But you know it's beyond your control. What you can control is to get up in the morning, to put on your boots, to put on your jacket, to go shovel the manure, to go uh, sow the seed, to water the seed, to feed the seed, and the rest is up to God who's the one who made the seed. And this is what a farmer does. Have you ever had homegrown, farm-raised tomatoes? Do you know there's a difference between farm-raised, homegrown tomatoes and store-bought tomatoes? I don't know if, I know I'm out in the South, but does that resonate with anybody here? Okay, just make sure I'm talking to the right people. Store-bought tomatoes are, eh. Homegrown tomatoes are like apple. I mean, you just eat those things, put some salt on it, whatever your flavor is, and go to town. You know what the difference between homegrown tomatoes are and store-bought tomatoes? Time and patience. You know what they do to store-bought tomatoes? They pick them early. They put them in a basket. They spray some stuff on them. They then help them ripen when it's the right time. And so the taste difference is time and patience. You know what homegrown tomatoes are picked? At the right time. Time and patience. And discipleship takes time and patience like the farmers, at the right time. We, we don't have transfer growth, but we have people that we've raised up and spent time in, and we've, we've watered the seed and fertilized the seed and weeded the seed, and the, and the Lord brings the harvest, and it's that homegrown tomato. You taste and see that it is good because you see Jesus. It's all in that person. This is the best picture of a, of a farmer. And so church, East Point, We need soldiers. We need athletes. We need farmers. Sam, the staff, the elders, they can't do it by themselves. Men and women who will step into the calling, who will train others, that will train others, that will train others. Who will be dedicated, who will be disciplined, who will be dependable. This is what we need. This is how God designed it. And here's the why in closing. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. From the depths of a prison cell, Paul reaches out his hand across the Aegean Sea to Timothy, and he says, the gospel is not bound by my chains right now. Therefore, knowing the truth of God's word, despite the reality of my situation, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, the reason I do this, the reason you need to do this, the reason men and women that you disciple need to do this is for the sake of those who have never heard the gospel to hear the gospel and have a chance to come to faith in Christ. We do it for God's glory. And so people can come to faith in Christ. That's why we do it. 
And how many people know that if you understand your why, it changes everything? The why changes everything. The why is the motivation. There was a clip one time on YouTube I saw. <clears throat> and this gentleman was asked to sing the song Amazing Grace. And he begins to sing Amazing Grace. And the church I grew up in, it was just a piano and an organ. And Amazing Grace was pretty simple. You know, Amazing Grace. I'll sweep the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's just pretty simple. And then this gentleman, he says, okay, now listen, I want you to sing Amazing Grace, but this time I want you to sing it knowing that your dad just died. You've endured hardship and loss. You're frustrated and alone, but you know God is faithful. And it may be the last time you ever sing it. Now I want you to sing uh, Amazing Grace knowing your why. And all of a sudden, as an African-American gentleman, he sings Amazing Grace with all the soul and texture and dimension that somebody could possibly sing. And, and all of a sudden, the crowd that is listening to this random guy that they pick out of the audience sing this song is captivated because initially he sung the song based on what he was told to do. The second time he was given motivation on why he was told to do it. And the difference was he did it uh, in one time because he was told, and the other time because it came out of the depths of his soul. Because he understood the why. When you understand the why, it changes everything. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, you're strengthened by grace. You may be like, I understand the why, but I can't do it. Yeah, you can. Because you're strengthened by grace. Because it is God who does it through you. Despite your brokenness and your weakness and your floundering and your failure. He just wants a willing vessel taking baby steps of obedience towards the calling that he's placed on his life. So this morning, will you join with me? Will you join Sam in suffering for the sake of the gospel? In discipline that we may grow in holiness? In dedication that we may till and weed and water and seed and feed the seed and trust God for the harvest and see what God would do through men and women committed to the gospel. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, your Holy Spirit is the best recruiter there is. So would he do in our hearts what you desire for him to do? Would he move? Would he speak? Would he intercede? Would he interact? Would he woo? Would he challenge? Would he convict? Lord, would you move in hearts in the direction you want them to go? And would East Point be a beacon like Ephesus for reaching the East Coast for the sake of the gospel? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.